You can turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 15. The text is also printed in the bulletin for you. Acts 15, we'll look at verses 1 through 21. Um, This has been called uh, the First Ecumenical Council of the Church, uh, which took place in Jerusalem, or the Jerusalem Council. Uh, The Jerusalem Council was a tremendously significant event in the history of the New Testament church. Um, For one thing, we Presbyterians uh, see in this occasion how the apostolic church um, functioned and dealt with theological issues by local congregations sending their elders to meet with other elders from other local congregations. Um, And and really, it it is a pattern for... um, the way we view presbytery, which is when churches in the region send their uh, ministers and elders to meet together uh, once a quarter in our denomination, and then um, once a year, usually in June, um, all the churches in our whole denomination send elders uh, and delegates to uh, National General Assembly, is what we call it. So, of course, uh, This, what uh, what we read in Acts chapter 15, is slightly different from what we see today as the apostles were there and they had special authority to speak on God's behalf um, in a way that um, elders don't really have uh, these days. Um, But at best, really, that is a side issue uh, in this passage. Uh, The Presbyterian form of government is not the crucial matter that's being dealt with here. The crucial matter, the urgent matter, is, uh, is regarding a dire threat to the gospel. It's a dire threat to the gospel that came in the form of a quarrel about the law. Um, if you don't think that a quarrel about the law can represent a dire threat to the gospel, read Paul's letter to the Galatians, uh, which is closely associated with this occasion, actually. And just listen to the tone in his letter. In fact, Paul um, addresses quarrels about the law in almost all of his letters. Um, but one fellow who wrote an article on this passage, his name is Timothy Wiarda, said this, that the narrative of the Jerusalem Council forcefully highlights a theological message that God's purpose for the Gentiles is salvation without circumcision. God's purpose for the Gentiles is salvation without circumcision. And David Peterson, a commentator, adds to this, Christians in every age are bound to consider as of first importance the application of this theological principle in their own context. How we view the gospel uh, shapes how we view the law, right? So how we view the law is a gospel issue. It's crucial to us. The gospel has implications that need to be worked out in our lives and in the church in every age. Uh, So this morning, we're going to look at some of the gospel's implications for how we use the law in our lives. Let's let's pray, and then we'll read Acts chapter 15. Father, we come to you this morning and ask for your help, that you would send your spirit to illuminate our minds, to illuminate your word, so that we would be changed by it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. 
And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. This is the word of the Lord. So a little bit of context to this passage. A couple of years before this, Peter was sent by God to Cornelius, right? Um, And salvation came to the Gentiles. We looked at that last week. A church was planted then uh, in Antioch in Syria, which is somewhat far away from Jerusalem. And it sort of replaced Jerusalem from that point on as the hub of missions, right? Paul's missionary journeys, uh, he leaves from Antioch. Barnabas and Paul taught uh, in Antioch. It was kind of like pastors, pastors. for a year or so, and then they were commissioned as missionaries to go out from Antioch. And um, they had just returned from their first missionary journey, which had taken them up into the region of Galatia. And, um, and it says in chapter 14, in verse 27, when they arrived back in Antioch and gathered the church together, They declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So God is saving those people out there. Uh, Missions are successful. People are coming to faith. 
But, as it says in verse 1 of our text, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So the theological name for these guys is uh, they're the Judaizers, right? They're Jewish Christians who taught that Gentiles had to become like Jews in order to be saved, in order to become Christians. Judaizers fall under a broader category that, um, that we call legalists, right? Legalists is a broader category than Judaizers, which is a more generic way of talking about people who believe that adherence to the law is necessary for salvation. Right? And these legalists, in turn, we see as falling under an even broader category um, of moralists. Right? It's people who, um, who trust in and promote moral goodness of some sort for salvation without necessarily appealing to God's revealed law as the standard for moral goodness. Um, and so I think, actually, we can use these words kind of interchangeably, Judaizers, legalists, moralists, um, since they all boil down to this. <clears throat> it's a desire to present ourselves to God on the basis of something we do, right? The basis of something that we do. Um, Judaizers were teaching Gentile believers that they had to do something in order to receive God's favor, to truly be right with God. And that something was basically become one of us, become a, a law-abiding Jew. Right? You need to identify with God's historic people, Israel, get yourselves circumcised, and keep the whole law of God. Keep the Mosaic law. Now, <clears throat> in our day, um, I guess as you don't know many Judaizers, <laughs> Uh, legalism is rarely presented so explicitly. Hardly anyone in the church would say out loud, yes, yes, you know, faith is what saves you, but you really also need to keep God's law. Right? It's, it's usually not that explicit. Legalists in the church uh, more often just, um, just talk about the law in a way that makes you feel like God is far from you unless you do this. Well, no wonder God is far from you. You're doing this, right? Uh, you should consider yourself under threat of God's displeasure, and you should fear for your salvation if you do things like this. In order to fit in here, to truly be on God's side, you need to do this. You know what really changed my life? What really changed my family? is when I figured out that I just needed to do this. Right. Uh, legalists uh, frown with a thinly veiled disapproval when they hear about the, the sinful actions of others or when they hear about the actions of others that they consider to be sinful, like going to bars or watching R-rated movies, sending your kids to public school. Right. Uh, there's a conspicuous absence of grace in their conversations. They're more concerned with behavior modification than they are with a real connection, a real personal faith connection to Jesus. Because deep down, they feel like it's their behaviors that make everything okay. Right? 
if you're sensitive to it, um, this fact that um, people want to be judged by their behaviors or people want to judge others by their behaviors, if you're sensitive to that, you may sense that legalists are condescending, right, uh, without maybe being able to put your finger on the problem exactly, without being able to point to what, what was wrong with that conversation, right? But the legalists in the church in Jerusalem didn't leave much to guesswork. Apparently, they were clearly understood as teaching that the law of Moses had to be followed in order for Gentiles to be saved. Those Gentiles have to be circumcised and become Jews like us in order to be saved. Whatever the nuances of their specific teachings, it amounted to justification by works. Right? God will only accept you if you keep his law. And that didn't fly with Paul and Barnabas. They had no small dissension and debate with them. And then they were sent by the church in Antioch as delegates to a meeting of the General Assembly, right, uh, to present an overture on behalf of the local church. Um, Paul and Barnabas garnered the support of other churches along the way by telling real-life stories of God's work among the Gentiles and everyone got really excited about missions as they got more and more excited about the gospel and what God was doing in people's lives. Even the predominantly Jewish church in Jerusalem and the apostles and the elders there welcomed them. They welcomed them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So, um, even recognizing that they're outnumbered, they are feisty, right? Legalists are often feisty. You often find them at the center of controversies, at the center of debates. And here's the sad thing for them in this passage, and for us, is that um, they're believers. Some of the believers who belong to this party Here were people who had found in Jesus rest for their weary souls who wanted to remain under the burden, the heavy burden of the law and have put that burden on other people too. The problem is that, that legalists, even legalists inside the church, there's a disconnect, right? At, At some level, they don't get the gospel. At some level, they don't understand it. They haven't applied the gospel to the way that they think about the law. Paul says of those that are affected by legalism in Galatians, uh, in his letter to the Galatians chapter 2, their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. That's the problem, right? How is legalism out of step with the truth of the gospel? Legalists want to be loved for who they are or for what they've done, rather than being loved because of Jesus, because of who he is and what he's done. Legalists want to be known for their adherence to the law rather than wanting Jesus to be known for his grace. Legalists want to set themselves apart from others by their good works rather than find a happy communion with other sinners on whom God has poured his mercy. Legalists want others to be conformed to their own image um, in a way that brings glory to them 
rather than being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ in a way that honors the Lord. Um, One of my favorite questions to ask people is, what do you think Christianity is about? It usually is a good conversation starter. What do you think Christianity is about? A legalist might be too sophisticated to answer, you know, being a Christian means doing this or that. Being a Christian means being a good person. He might accurately recite the gospel. But Christianity is about the person and the work of Jesus who came into the world to reconcile us to God by his grace. He might answer the question right, but a legalist lives like the answer is, being a Christian means I'm a good person. And I'm happy when I'm successful. And I'm sad and I try to cover it up when I fail. Now, there are whole strains of legalism in the church today uh, where this is packaged in different ways. For example, it's been going on for a long time. Uh, The Roman Catholic Church has officially taught that good works are required for justification in order to be forgiven and counted as righteous in God's sight. Good works are part of that. Your good works. And our justification can actually increase by performing more good works. Okay? Canon 9 of the Council of Trent, which was uh, a council that met in the uh, mid-1500s, says this, If anyone says that by faith alone the impious is justified in such a way to mean that nothing else is required by God to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of, salva- uh, of justification, let him be anathema. If you believe in salvation by faith alone, let you be accursed, damned. That's fairly explicit, right? Uh, Let him be damned who says that justification is by grace through faith alone. Uh, Less obvious, maybe, are some of the the cultural customs of some churches, right? Where one has to dress in a certain way or run one's home in a certain way or send uh, one's children to certain schools, educate them in certain ways, engage with the culture in a certain way, vote a certain way, in order to be truly accepted into the community. In order to really be one of us, under God's favor, under under God's umbrella of mercy, you've got to live like this and look like us. Um, In our particular theological circles, one is prone to encounter a set of ideas uh, generally called theonomy. Right? The word theonomy comes from the Greek words for God, theos, and nomos, which is law, God's law. Right? As if that weren't enough of a tip-off right there, theonomists are interested in God's law, <laughs> uh, which comes out in their conversations frequently. Right? And theonomists are particularly concerned with applying God's law in every way possible, including uh, government, right? They generally teach that the laws and punishments that are prescribed in the Old Testament should be observed by our nation and every other nation on the planet. And the reason why we're in such a mess is because we're under God's judgment for not keeping his law, for not abiding by his law as a nation. And the way to get out from under God's judgment is for the government to adopt God's law as it was delivered to Moses. 
That's the way to get out from under God's judgment. It's a very complex issue. There are some good things said by those who hold this position. But we're all prone to distort even good things in our uh, attempts to justify ourselves. You use these things legalistically, right? And the emphasis of theonomy is on God's law. It's not on God's grace. Conversations tend to run toward how much better off we'd all be if we just keep the law of Moses. Theonomists hint at the fact that Jesus is going to be really disappointed if America doesn't start taking his law seriously and start killing those sinners and idolaters as the just punishment for their wickedness, which is prescribed in the Old Testament. They often accuse fellow Christians of not taking the law seriously enough, which is the same thing that the Pharisees accused Jesus of and his disciples. It's the same thing that the Judaizers accused Paul of. You don't take the law seriously enough. Legalism sidetracks discussions of God's grace. And it distracts us from the gospel. And once you've added the requirements of the law in any form to the gospel of Jesus Christ, once you've contaminated the grace of God by legalism, you have lost the gospel entirely because the gospel is pure grace. Pure grace. The gospel says that the love of God comes to us in spite of our complete failure to keep his law. And that's what Peter talks about on the floor of the Jerusalem Council. Brothers, you know... That in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Peter's referring to the episode with Cornelius, which we looked last week from Acts chapter 10 and 11. Unmistakably, God sent Peter to the Gentiles who did not keep the law. And apart from them keeping the law apart from them being circumcised like any good Jew would have been, God saved them through faith. He cleansed their hearts through faith. He gave them his Holy Spirit. He dwelt inside of them. David Peterson says, The gift of the Spirit was a witness to the Gentiles themselves that they had been accepted by God. Indirectly, it was also a testimony to Jews who had received the same Spirit through believing in Jesus that Gentiles were united with them in the New Covenant community. Peter says God made no distinction between those who had the law and tried to keep it and those who didn't have the law and didn't try to keep it. He made no distinction. He cleansed their hearts by faith. Verse 10, Now therefore, Peter says, Why are you putting God to the test? by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. People who place the law in a place alongside the gospel and say, you've got to do this or that, are testing God's patience. And they're inviting God's judgment because they're distracting others from the gospel of grace. David Peterson again says that the yoke was used as a metaphor for political or social control. Jesus had criticized the Jewish religious leaders for laying this yoke, the heavy yoke of the law, on the people in an effort to control them and maintain power. 
The law is a yoke that no one can bear. In fact, the law was meant all along to point us to our deficiencies, to our need for someone to come in from the outside and save us from our sins, save us from our weaknesses. If you want an excellent, uh, thorough treatment on how to view the law, I recommend a book by Vern Poitras. It's The Shadow of Christ in the Law of Moses. But we can't keep the law of God perfectly, right? even if we tried. So there is absolutely no hope in it. There is no hope to be found in keeping the law. We cannot remove God's judgment and get God's favor by doing anything with the law ourselves. But Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus offers rest for our souls from the heavy burdens of the law. He kept the law for us. He suffered the penalties of the law for us on the cross so that we no longer have to keep the law to make God happy with us. We are justified, we're forgiven, we're accepted by God by the grace that is in Jesus Christ, by faith in him alone. Peter puts it in a very interesting way, actually, in in verse 11. But we, Jews, believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. You might have expected him to say, well, we believe that those Gentiles will be saved the same way we will. Right? But he reverses it. And Alan Thompson uh, writes this about that. The implication of this is that circumcision is not even required for Jews, let alone Gentiles, in order to belong to the people of God. David Peterson, the Jerusalem Council makes the gospel of salvation by faith alone the key to defining the true nature of the church. It's because of Jesus that God is no longer disappointed with us, but smiles on us as a well-pleased father. It's because of Jesus that God no longer keeps us at a distance, but warmly receives us with open arms. And it doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, how you've kept the law or not kept the law. Because of Jesus, all your sins are forgiven. All his righteousness is yours. And you have a relationship with God that no one, nothing can ever threaten. Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 2. Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, 
have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. People need God's grace because they've broken the law, right? They've sinned, and God has shown clearly that he saves people like that. He saves sinners. He forgives sinners. He loves and receives sinners who have the deepest need for his grace, and that includes law-breaking Jews, and it includes law-breaking Gentiles like you and me. God is in the business of saving sinners from every nation, regardless of whether or not they adopt Israel's laws, because he's doing it by his grace. That's how he's working in the world, by his grace. James ties this together for us biblically as he quotes from Amos 9, right, which relates the resurrection and the exaltation of the Davidic Messiah, the one who will rebuild the people of God with the ingathering of people from all nations. John Stott says, through the Davidic Christ, Gentiles will be included in his new community. It's not through their law-keeping or becoming Jews through circumcision. It's through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that God accepts them. So James says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So it might seem like he's backtracking, right? Uh, like he's saying, well, let's not burden them with the law. Let's just have them keep these few laws. Because, you know, they can hear the rest of the laws more fully in the synagogues every week. Right? Um, that makes no sense at all, right? Especially considering the things that he highlights here. Things that are polluted by idols, sexual immorality, things strangled and blood. Like, why select those for singling out of all the Mosaic laws? What... What do those mean? What do those have in common? Uh, commentator Ben Witherington argues uh, persuasively that these requirements relate primarily to pagan practices associated with temple idolatry. Right? That's the major false religion of the day. Pagan temple idolatry. And Alan Thompson paraphrases James then in this way. And we shouldn't make it difficult for the Gentiles who are repenting who are turning to God. We should, of course, tell them to turn away from their pagan idolatry, but it's made difficult enough for them every Sabbath, every week, in the synagogues. We shouldn't make it more difficult for them to to turn to God. James is saying that the law is a burden they should not have to bear, but that true faith shows itself in turning away from false gods. The Gentiles don't have to become Jews, but they can't remain pagan idolaters either. They need to repent and believe the gospel. They need to repent, turn from their idolatry, and believe, turn to Christ. Paul writes in uh, 1 Thessalonians to the people there, You turned from God 
Uh, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's, that's what James is saying. In effect, this is keeping the first commandment. Right? You shall have no other gods before me. Believers who are united to Christ by faith and who receive the benefits of salvation by grace alone will express their faith in submission to God, in obedience to God's moral law. And we say that the moral law is summed up in the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, which are in turn summed up in the two commandments that Jesus gave us to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the summary of the law. Paul says that. It's the summary of the law. But we don't look to these things. We don't look to these commandments to give us life and peace with God. That's a critical distinction that Christianity makes. You do not keep the law in order to get favor with God. But because God has freely favored us, our response is obedience to his law, to his moral law. We keep these commandments as a thankful response to God's mercy as we're transformed into the image of Christ by faith. We're talking about the moral law. And apart from the moral law, we see the laws that are governing Israel in the Old Testament as having fulfilled their purpose at the first coming of Jesus Christ. Our Confession of Faith puts it nicely enough. Uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 19, says this. God was pleased to give to the people of Israel, as a church under age, ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding diverse instructions of moral duties, all which ceremonial laws are now abrogated under the New Testament. So laws regarding animal sacrifices and ritual purification have met their purpose in Christ, who is our sacrifice. He is our purification and our sanctification. And so these laws have been done away with. And then in the next paragraph, the Westminster Confession continues, To Israel also, as a body politic, as a nation, he gave sundry judicial or civil laws, which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any other now, further than the general equity thereof may require. So the laws and the punishments that were prescribed by Moses for Israel as a nation no longer apply to the people of God because we're not a nation like other nations. We're people from every tribe and tongue and nation who belong to a kingdom that is not of this world. And the, the last bit I want to read from the Westminster is, the moral law doth forever bind all, as well justified persons as others, to the obedience thereof. All people, Christians or not, have this law of God written on our consciences. It's in our very nature. And it is the universal perpetual guide for us by which we demonstrate our faith by which we demonstrate our submission to God. We're not without the law, like the Judaizers would have accused Paul. Right? We're not without the law. We have the law of Christ. Love for God and love for our neighbor is the form that our obedience takes, and it's a change only brought about 
in the heart as we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a church grows in its faith, it will grow in its love. And Paul said that love is the fulfilling of the law. Paul also said in Titus chapter 3, verse 9, Avoid foolish controversies and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Fundamentally, we're a people of the gospel. We're not a people of the law. We're a people with good news for others so that they can find rest for their weary souls in Jesus. We're not a, per, uh, a people that lay heavy burdens on others. So let's have our conversations with others and our expectations for others reflect that, the fact that we're a gospel people. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, the only way that we are to uh, truly receive your word and be changed by it is if you uh, come to us and um, sweeten the deal, as it were, with your favor, with your free mercy and grace and love has been poured out on us through Jesus and through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So we pray that you would convince us of the gospel, that you would truly shift our minds, our thoughts, our conversations, all of our expectations towards your grace, that you would make us a gracious people and not a people of the law, because we know that it is our tendency to run to anything to justify ourselves in your sight. We pray that you would strike that tendency down from us and that you would bind us up. Uh, give us rest in Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.